You're listening to Healthcare Now Radio. Stand by for this just in the latest in healthcare innovation and technology trends with your HIT advisor, Justin Barnes. Thank you for tuning in, and welcome to This Just In. I'm your host, Justin Barnes. In these half-hour segments, I'll bring you the latest advancements in healthcare, strategy, innovation, and public policy. As always, we're broadcasting from the This Just In studios on the Business Radio X network, as well as the Healthcare Now radio network. And before we dive into my guest today, I want to take a moment to let everyone know that we'll be broadcasting the This Just In radio show again live from the HIMSS annual conference in Las Vegas on Wednesday, March 7th, from 10 a.m. Pacific to 2 p.m. Pacific. Many more details to come here shortly, but I hope everyone is planning on attending the conference. If you're not, though, you'll be able to stream us live uh, at thisjustinradio.com on Wednesday, March 7th. We'll have another great slate of CEO, CIO, leading care providers, industry thought leaders, riveting authors, and certainly policymakers joining the show. For this episode, though, my 115th episode, we're going to speak with Dan Monroe, Forbes contributor and author of Casino Healthcare. Welcome to the show, Dan. Hey, thanks for having me. Oh, um, we met about a year and a half ago um, through Roberta Mullins and Carol Flagg. We both were guests on a virtual panel regarding where healthcare was headed based on the two presidential campaigns at the time. So uh, we I remember had great, that. Yeah, we had a great dialogue. And um, I think uh, very objectively, we covered the basis on what uh, the Clinton campaign was was moving forward. And if she became president, uh, what healthcare would look like. And then if... Uh, you know, the Trump campaign and what uh, if they became president, what health care would look like. And um, I think actually we're fairly spot on. None of us picked the outcome of the election, I don't believe. <laughs> but no, uh, nobody got nobody could foresee that one coming. Right. But um, leaving politics aside, I, I'm very excited to make uh, your acquaintance again and have you on this show. You uh, you have a great book, Casino Healthcare, and uh, I've read uh, many excerpts from it. And um, I think the most cool factor that I found in the book is the is the references to history and, and what I learned. I love history. I'm a history buff. Uh, and you you really do educate the reader on the origins of healthcare, Medicare, uh, what companies have done, what the payers have done in the past, uh, and then really where we are. And you do a good job of outlining where we are um, you have some conclusions that could differ uh, from my perspective and opinions, but hey, they're all opinions and, and we all got them. Uh, but right. uh, I'm very happy that you, you've taken the time to join the show and actually I'm very excited. I think you're going to be able to join the uh, live radio show uh, while we're at Hems in Las Vegas as well. So thank you for that. Absolutely. And I look forward to it. So let's start off a little bit before we dive into the book and the questions, a little, uh, you know, background of, of where you're from, where'd you grow up, go to school, all those good things. Yeah, absolutely. So I actually graduated from a high school, which was uh, the International School of Brussels in Brussels, Belgium, oh. before returning uh, before returning to the United States for uh, my first college degree at the University of Redlands, which actually was in journalism and uh, communications. But in those days, as is the case today, there's just not a lot of revenue opportunities, uh, you know, in that in that uh, emerging market. So I quickly shifted keyboards and went back for a second degree in computer science, and so had a full 
you know, basically a full career in computer science as a geek head and uh, on, this, on the software side of, of things and uh, did four, uh, heads down software development for four years for IBM and other companies and then migrated to the sales and marketing side and then migrated from there into early stage ventures in software, two of which were in the healthcare space. One was on the payer side and the other was on the provider side. And so I got a real good um, tech, you know, real good tech background on enterprise software for payers and providers. And it gave me some uh, really important uh, technical insight into how the business models work. And then uh, migrated to writing about healthcare in 2011. And that was where I started with Forbes. And I've since written for a number of other publications and that led up to writing the book. Yeah, no, that's a great background, and I and I can tell you've got some. You know your 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 stuff. Uh, you know when when you're talking about different constituencies in healthcare, I can tell you've been part of them uh, in the past, and so it really does come across. Like I said, it's a, it's a great educational read um, as well. So the premise of the book, uh, this is you know it really the system isn't broken; it's working exactly as defined. Um, we just need a you know a different design. And that debate is well underway. And, and you cover a lot of those aspects. And, and certainly we've even, you know, since the book was written, healthcare has, has evolved a little bit. And I want to, you know, certainly touch on that. But but starting off, uh, the Millman Medical Index is a key part of Chapter 4, the big squeeze. Why is this one index so important? Because you reference it throughout the book. So I, I do. And it's an important index that I track and I've written about uh, almost every year since yeah. 2011. And the reason it's important is because it highlights two things. First of all, it highlights the fact that our system here in the US is a system of tiered coverage. We tier coverage by age, by income, by employment, by military service, by heritage. Even with all that tiering, we still wind up with about 12% of the population that has no health insurance. Mm -hmm. And this differs dramatically from every other industrialized country, which uses systems of what are called universal health coverage. So that's a key element of the Milliman Medical Index because the Milliman Medical Index highlights the employment category of coverage. And this is, let's face it, the, the way the vast majority of Americans, about 155 million Americans, get their coverage through their employer. And the employer market for insurance represents what I call inelastic pricing. In effect, it's whatever the market will bear right. based on the employer size and based on the network that the employer is, um, is targeting to access. And the cost is something that the Milliman Medical Index tracks as an average cost for an American family of four for getting PPO coverage through their employer. And that index this year will exceed $27,000, uh, both the employer contribution and the employee contribution will exceed $27,000 as an average uh, for this year. And it's, and it's an index that's been going up as long as I've gone back and tracking it since 2002, mm -hmm. which is basically 16 years. It's gone up every year and it will go up again this year. Yeah, no, I, I agree. So let's let's get the first part out of the way. In a, and I asked you this offline, what kind of insurance do you currently have? Just kind of put that on the table and, and cause we understand different perspectives that way, too. So 
What kind of insurance do you Absolutely. have? Absolutely. Yeah, so we have commercial coverage, and I've referenced this in uh, some of the coverage that I've mm -hmm. done on Forbes, because uh, our provider is actually Anthem, and we were a part of the Anthem data breach that happened, I think, three years ago, where about 80 million Americans, um, their health data uh, was potentially compromised by Anthem, mm -hmm. and we were a part of that that, uh, that that process. So I got a chance to see it firsthand. And uh, so we have commercial coverage through Anthem. Okay. Yeah. And, and just for my readers, I, don't, I haven't really brought this up much in the past, but I have MediShare. I had to do a pretty dramatic shift and change for exactly why your book was written. And just for the, what we're experiencing as Americans is my costs were just dramatically going up. I've been self-employed for a long time. And I actually went out to the exchange, uh, but that was just getting astronomical, you know, for my wife and I. We don't have children, but, my, you know, we were paying $12,000 a year to just to yep. have access to health care. And yep. uh, it was just a joke. Uh, and, and, I'm, and I'm a fiscally responsible person. I'm fiscally minded. I don't like a you know, waste anything if I don't have to. Um, and, uh, and I just saw that uh, as a complete waste. Uh, and so I went and researched uh, and we're, we're Christians. And so uh, MediShare was a great option. And my cost dropped down from about $1,000 a month to uh, $230 a month. And um, so far, it's been a phenomenal uh, program. So and, and there are those kinds of programs that exist and they're great because they do have they serve a purpose. And the challenge is that for most Americans, though, that are struggling to find insurance outside of employment, mm -hmm. for example, you know, obviously you, there's Medicaid, which if you have a low enough income, you can qualify for. If you're over a certain age, you can qualify, obviously, for, for Medicare over 65. But there's those gaps where you're not able to get access to employer coverage. Right and you're in a family or in an age group or a band where you have to go to the commercial market and the commercial market is just brutally expensive. Yes, it is. And, uh, and it's, you know, your book articulates that and, and also why it's so expensive in, in great ways. So let's dive into the single payer topic. So is single payer healthcare the ultimate solution in your opinion or goal? So, yeah, it, it tends to get a lot of traction and it has gotten a lot more traction, certainly since uh, Bernie Sanders mm -hmm. brought it into the political dialogue with the idea of Medicare for all. The fact is most Americans understand peripherally how Medicare works. So the idea of simply expanding that to be coverage for every American is, is an easy concept to understand. But I would argue that Bernie short-circuited the debate because he went straight for discussing about Medicare for all without getting to, into all of the details of how that would work and how Americans might mm -hmm. access that. The reality is that we don't need single payer to get to a system of universal health coverage. And it's the universal health coverage uh, process mm -hmm. that is really the biggest single leverage against cost. And the reason is simple. It's because in healthcare, there's actuarial math, which determines the cost of insurance based on the size of the pool. Well, if you divide that pool and slice it and tier it in the way that we have, you get all kinds of uh, opportunities for pricing that are 
arbitrary and in many cases capricious. Mm -hmm. And if you simply make everybody a part of the pool, you get the largest possible denominator for every cost. And that becomes, in effect, single pricing healthcare. And that's my argument. How you pay for single pricing healthcare is immaterial. We're a very wealthy country. We right. can easily afford any system that we choose except one, and that's the one that we have. <laughs> so is single payer necessary? No. We could use a multi-payer system like other countries have, and, a base, and probably one of the better examples of that is Germany, mm -hmm. which uses a multi-payer model. And they use it fine, but it's predicated on a system of universal health coverage. And so that's the argument that I uh, am passionate about making relative to the articles that I write and then also the uh, primary argument in the book. Do you think the payers would go along with it? Because they're making so much money now. Or, or how do, where do you think the pressure would come from to make something like that happen? Where would that influence come from? Well, the interesting aspect of this is um, the fact that the pay, it's it's an, a, kind of a misperception mm -hmm. that the payers are making egregious profits off of this system of commercial coverage. The reality is the net profit margin for commercial payers is relatively low. It's typically well under 5% for most uh, commercial payers. And if you compare that, let's just, you know, take the lens back a little bit and compare it to say a company like Apple or even pharmaceutical companies, the net profit margin for those groups is often 20% or more. Mm -hmm. So the payers aren't really making in a sense, a lot of money off of the business of coverage. So if you effectively took them all out of the equation completely, I'm not sure you would have the dramatic effect that you would need relative to cost. And so the, the, the reality is that they would still be in the business of providing administrative functions, which they do today. And in fact, a large percentage of the payer business isn't even risk or, or covering risk as much as it is administering uh, the, the the process of healthcare for billing and accounting purposes. Hmm. No, I, I understand. I guess you're probably the first guest that has said that the insurance companies aren't making the, the profits that we think. And, and I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I agree with the difference between 5% and 20%. Um, but, uh, but no, I understand. So what's the timeline you see for systemic healthcare reform then? What do you, th what, you know, with all that's going on? Yeah, so in the sense of looking at this historically through the lens of other countries that have approached this, and probably the one of the best examples is Canada, um, you know, kind of from start to finish, it's typically about a 40 to 50 year timeline. And so that can that can sound daunting on the one hand. On the other hand, I feel like and I think that we're about halfway through that kind of a timeline, which is 40 to 50 years. Yeah. And the reason I say halfway is because if you go back in the history, our first uh, public recognition, if you will, that we needed to make a systemic change was probably Hillary Care mm -hmm. in 1993. Right. And so 1993 is kind of the starting point of our public recognition that we were on and we continue to be on a path that's unsustainable. 
And so 1993 until today is literally, uh, what, 25 years? Mm -hmm. So 25 years in a 50-year timeline is probably about right. And of course, since then, we've had a number of other legislative passes, uh, some of which have been more successful than others. Certainly, Obamacare um, had elements of its uh, of success, but it wasn't the dramatic change that we need, and it reflects more of the incremental change towards these other systemic goals. Yeah, actually, it's a, that's a great perspective, um, and I and I actually agree with your perspective. So, and it's actually more to kind of put some fuel in there as well. I think did you see the MedPAC recommendations from about a week ago? That um, they actually voted 14 to two against MACRA and MIPS and the Quality Payment Program. Um, yeah. So I think we could see. I, I don't see Congress taking it up anytime soon, but um, I, I do see uh, a lot of consternation with the changes that are trying to be made in healthcare. So yeah, um, and it and it goes back to what you know. It it goes back to what President Obama said, kind of as he was walking out the door. He said, you know, progress isn't always linear. Right. And it's always, you know, it's not always net positive. So that's part of the process that we're engaged in is the sense that we're going to make these changes and they're going to happen over a period of time. They're not going to be a function of a single piece of legislation or, I think, a single administration. No, excellent. And for those just tuning in, we're speaking with Dan Monroe, Forbes contributor and author of Casino Healthcare. So what are some of the uh, – you mentioned some of the countries, Germany. I think you may have mentioned Canada. But are there any other, any other examples of systemic um, or healthcare reform out there? So, yeah, there's a great one that a lot of people aren't aware of, and I reference it periodically, but I think it's a great example right here in the U.S., is the all-payer system in the state of Maryland. Now, granted, it's a small sort of uh, mm -hmm. population – in the, in the state of Maryland, which is, I think, it covers about six million people. And granted, the all-payer system that they have is for inpatient pricing only, but it's a great model in the sense of getting to single pricing, and they do have plans to extend that uh, more broadly to outpatient services as well. The challenge, of course, is that the single pricing that they use is not tied, they, they managed to get a waiver through CMS. So the waiver that they have from CMS in effect means that all of the other states, all 49 other states are basically subsidizing the higher price oh. that the all payer system in Maryland uses for Medicare pricing. Fascinating. Actually, it is. Uh, yeah. No, go ahead. Yeah, so that's a great example of where I think we're seeing some of those kinds of beachheads mm -hmm. where uh, they're more than just experiments. The all-payer system in Maryland has been up and running for a number of years, and I hope and, and I think they have plans to expand that this year into the outpatient setting, which would be then more of a single pricing uh, model within a single state and how to, you know, how to then uh, – branch that into both other states and then potentially nationally. Excellent. I initially thought when you when you started to talk there, you were going to say something. California just rolled out a really cool accountable care or ACO blueprint that I think the rest of the country uh, will be able to follow. It's a different perspective. It's a, it, it actually is working through the payers, but that's about the direction you're initially going to go. But um, 
I, uh, I do know the, the Maryland program that you're speaking about, and, uh, and I agree. That is something that we can certainly look to. So what's um, shifting gears a little bit uh, for, say, the last uh, six minutes or so of the show, um, let's talk about uh, – certainly want to give a plug. Do want people to pick up Casino Healthcare. Great book. Again, a lot of history on where healthcare came from in America, um, how it's evolved – and how it's evolving today, and then obviously it offers up some solutions here. So a, a great read for sure. But let's shift um, a little bit. So what was your pick for a healthcare story in 2017? Yeah, so without a doubt for me, the biggest single story, which didn't get uh, enough airplay, I thought, was the opioid uh, crisis, totally the opioid epidemic. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason is because just this year, the White House Council of Economic Advisors came out with an estimate. This is a collective group of economic advisors. Yep. They estimate the cost of the opioid crisis for one year. This is going back two years now, 2015. They estimate the cost of, of, of the opioid crisis in 2015 at over $500 billion. Yep. Yeah. just for one year. And the challenge is that it's not just a, a cost component, which is huge. It's it's the huge amount of, um, of, of trouble that it leaves in its wake relative to mental health, yep. uh, substance abuse, um, and all of the sort of tangential issues that the country is now left with as the result of this crisis, which started with basically, if you go back into the history of it, it start, which I did, by the way, yeah. another great book, another great book to read if you haven't read it, is a book on this topic, which is called Dreamland, and uh, I can't recommend it enough because it talks about how this um, this mushroom, how this problem, and how this crisis mushroom mm -hmm. from its earliest stages, and it started with a letter, a hundred word letter that uh, the pharmaceutical industry relied on for being able to surprise, you know, basically to subs uh, prescribe opioids in a way in which they felt was safe and avoided addiction. And that's obviously not the case. And we're left with the results of that. And we'll be left with the results of that for a long period of time because 500 billion is yep. a lot of money. It is. And, and I'm, I'm glad you brought it up and I'm glad that we're talking about it. And, you know, I'm glad that the administration, the Trump administration is beginning to tackle it. We're tackling it pretty heavily here in Georgia. I'm pretty close with the attorney general here. Uh, and he's got a great task force that he's, um, uh, you know, put towards this. We, we're being hit very hard, certainly in the northern parts of Georgia um, with opioid abuse. But I think all communities are. Uh, and if you don't know yep. that, you do need to research it because it's, it's very serious. So. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. So thanks, Dan, for bringing that up. So what do you see for, you know, what are some of the big stories or what are we going to continue to see? Obviously, the opioid um, crisis is, is going to be front and center for 2018 and 2019. But anything else that you see on the horizon this year, next year? Yeah. So I think we're in a period of what I would call high chaos. <laughs> and uh, the reason is because there's a strong uh, there's a strong focus and there's a strong uh, amount of activity geared towards sort of dismantling Obamacare. And uh, I understand the politics behind that. I don't agree with them, but um, I understand the politics behind that. And I think there will be some, obviously there will be some success in dismantling that, but it won't change the ultimate trajectory other than it will change the timeline 
And it may be that we've delayed the timeline to some of the systemic changes that we need by two, three, or four years. But their ultimate, uh, ultimately, the trajectory is is unchangeable because the costs cannot continue to rise in the way that they that they continue to. I couldn't agree more. Um, and uh, and I agree. I, I see that that chaos out there as well. I see the chaos among providers, I see the chaos among companies, I see the chaos certainly right. among patients. So, uh, and payers, yeah. you know, there's an, there's a, a, there's an amount of chaos in the payer community because they, they have to price for, the, for right. the year ahead. And they're starting already to think in terms of pricing for 2019. And it's like, how do you price, you know, how do you price this based on an administration that wants to, you know, keep pulling pins on grenades and so there's a real uh, challenge to that market as well. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, we're basically at time, Dan. Uh, you're a great guest. I, uh, I appreciate you taking the time out. Dan Monroe, um, Forge contributor and author of Casino Healthcare. And I certainly look forward to seeing you at HIMSS on March 7th, Wednesday, March 7th, and look forward to having you on, on air there as well. Absolutely. Look forward to it. And we'll look forward to seeing you in Vegas. Uh, excellent. Thank you, Dan. And uh, thank you to everyone for listening and joining us today. Please tune in weekdays at 2.30 p.m. Eastern, 11.30 a.m. Pacific. As always, you can track me on Twitter at HIT Advisor and use the hashtag ThisJustinRadio so we can respond to your comments from the show. If you miss any of this episode or want to hear more, all my shows are posted on Apple iTunes and out on SoundCloud and iHeartRadio and Spreaker. So uh, very happy to see all that uh, come into fruition. Uh, and also you can check out the new website we've launched at JustinBarnes.com. Thanks, everyone. Have a terrific week. 